0: All right, good morning again. How's everybody doing this morning? Woo! I'm assuming some lights will come up in a second. We'll get to that in a minute. That'd be my son running the lights back there. Why want not y'all give him a big hand for leaving us in the dark. We'll get to criticisms that our family gives us as we get here a little, short, a little shorter in the message. So, hey, uh, so... Uh, I want to I talk about something just to begin with, because it is relevant to the message this morning, but something that you're probably aware of if you've been attending LifePoint for any length of time, and um, perhaps you've even had some thoughts about it, or maybe uh, was curious about it, and so I want to kind of clear the air on, on something. Um, so beginning uh, in July, so July 1st actually, um, I made a decision, a conscious decision in my life to make some lifestyle changes in the way that i was eating and um, in the last six months since july 1st i've actually lost a little bit of weight i think some of you have probably uh, noticed that Um, but i've lost a few pounds Uh, actually i've lost about 40 pounds and um, i was wearing a size 38 on july 1st i wore a size 38 in the waist and uh, i wear a size 30 i'm wearing a size 32 now and uh, i actually told jennifer uh, over the christmas holidays last week i think i said you know i could actually uh, I think I can actually get into a 30 uh, but I'm not because I bought five pair of blue jeans when I got down to a 32 and I had to swap my kidney for them and so uh, I don't have any kidneys left. I had no idea what what clothes cost. How many men in the room have never bought clothes? Okay I'm the only one. I snuck no, got one in the back. Okay I apparently have never or at least I've never Bought them and was aware of what I was paying for them. And so I was like, but I'm not. I'm not going to change to a size 30 because I don't want to buy five more pairs of pants. And so put in perspective, I, was a 30, I wore a 38 in June. And uh, now my waist is smaller than Todd Oldham. So there you go. Um, and so uh, anyway, lost a bunch of weight, lost a bunch of inches. And, uh, but that's not the reason that I did it. I never set out in July to lose weight. That was not my goal. Um, actually, what had happened is um, eventually in life uh, with things that need to change, uh, you got to get to a place in your life where maybe you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, And and what I mean by that was I had gotten to a place in my life where um, I was overweight, uh, but more importantly, um, or maybe more significantly, uh, I had gotten where I couldn't walk to the mailbox without hurting. My knees, my joints were hurting, my knees were hurting, um, I, I had just cardiovascularly, I couldn't catch my breath. Uh, I would come home on, on virtually every Sunday, I would get home, and uh, one, of, one of three people, either my wife, my oldest son, would not be my youngest son who would do this because he has a heart and he's compassionate. Uh, my oldest son takes after his mom. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but my wife or my oldest son or Quentin, one, would say this hey, are you okay? Because, man, you were breathing so hard, I could barely hear you talking this morning. And I'm like, what? You're crazy. And then the other person would do this. Like, I'm like, really? Like, and then my life group began to bring it up. Not my whole life group, just, you know, particular members that I won't name. Marcy started talking about it. And, um, she would bring it up that, man, you just, man you're breathing like you're going to die on stage. And, uh, and so I started watching some online, and I was like, man, um, I need to make some lifestyle changes. And so um, July 1st, uh, and it wasn't anything special about July 1st. On July 1st, I decided to get serious, moderately serious about what I was eating. And not just stopping eating bad stuff, but to intentionally eat good stuff. And, um, and I eat, uh, you know, about 80% of what I eat has one ingredient now, um, just a lot of whole foods, vegetables, fruits. Um, probably another 10 or 15% of what I eat has less than five ingredients in it. And then there's still a little bit of stuff that does, you know, that's, that's but I try to stay away from the processed foods. And I've not had a soda. I uh, don't add added sugars very much, very little sugar. And the only bread that I eat is bread that, for the most part, that my wife bakes. She bakes homemade sourdough bread. Oh, she's that awesome, and it's delicious. And, uh, and so I started doing that January 1st, or July 1st, I started doing that. On July 5th, I think it was, I had to go and get a health screening for our health insurance. I was at the pharmacy, we did it at the pharmacist, and I knew that I was, um, I, let me back up. One of the things I thought might be leading to some of the joint pain and my inability to breathe. I don't know, still don't know if it was or not, but one thing that occurred to me was I was on two blood pressure pills. And I was just kind of tired of being on medicine. I'll just be honest, just tired. I'm just kind of guy I don't want to be on medicine, I was tired of taking it. And I had read where some of the side effects of what some of the medicine I was taking was affecting my energy levels and could possibly be affecting joint pain. So I was like, well, I need to figure out how to get off this blood pressure medicine. I bought a book. Uh, Actually, Jennifer had bought me this book a year prior and I was too stubborn to read it, so I started reading this book about how to get, how to allow diet to help me get off this blood pressure medicine. So we go on uh, July 5th, my blood pressure run about 140-ish, over 85-ish on two blood pressure medicines. It was a lot worse than that on no medicine. So I set out set, trying to get off this medicine. I go to the doctor or the pharmacist on July 5th, and uh, I knew my blood pressure was going to be somewhat high. I've been doing this five days, and, and I told them, that hey, I'm on two medicines, and then um, I come to realize that day my cholesterol was over 400, and my sugar was at diabetic levels, um, and, and I realized, I mean, I, and they wanted to send me straight to the doctor, and I'm like, hey, give me a month. And I went from being about 80% serious about my health and about these lifestyle changes to 100% serious, like full-on pathological obsession and compulsion, right, like just be serious about it, and... um and, and so I did. I mean, no added sugars, no bread. I've eaten no pork. Um, I, I cut out most of the sweets, except for during the holidays and, um, and birthdays, and I just got real serious about it. Again, lost 40 pounds, six inches in my waist. Now, but here's the reason I'm bringing this up this morning, how it's related to the message, is one of the things I had to do, and I think it's important, if you want to make significant change in your life, is you've got to understand the power of habit and routine. Um, you, nothing significant that you do is going to happen outside discipline, outside habit and routine, all right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of power in habit and routine. And, and I know, the reason I say I, I want to come clean this morning is, I know particularly some of the ladies in the room, and I, I, I'm not picking on you ladies, I just know this happens. When people lose a lot of weight really quickly, um, this is what, I hear it all the time. Somebody lose a bunch of weight, and this is what you'll hear. Well, I know what's going on with them. They own them shots, I don't know what them shots are, but that's what everybody's on that loses weight, apparently. Are they on them shots? I would be saving them for the diabetics, but they're taking them. I'm like, I don't even really fully know what we're talking about. But apparently, you can get you a shot and lose all the weight you want to lose. Apparently, I don't know. But I just want you to know, I'm not taking no shots. Uh, I came to CR a few weeks ago, and they asked me if I wanted a blue chip. So I'm either, apparently, I'm either taking shots or using meth. I mean, that's the, that's the going thought. I'm not doing either. Um, I'm I'm not doing either one. I probably do need a blue chip, but not for meth, and not because I'm losing weight. But uh, I'm not doing either one. I just got real serious, and I leverage the power of habit and routine. He said, "What do you What do you mean, man? What do you mean by that?" Well, let me just tell you what my morning looks like. Okay, this is what I do every single morning. Tell you about how what I eat for breakfast every morning. So every morning when I get up, I walk to the cabinet, wall cabinet, the center one. I open the center cabinet door. I reach onto the second shift. I take out a glass bowl. I lay it on the counter. I reach down below it. I get a paper plate, put it to the left of the bowl, okay? I reach over to the left cabinet, and I get the the measuring cup out. I take that cup straight to the sink, turn on the water, put two-thirds of a cup of water into the measuring cup, pour it into the bowl, put the measuring cup back up, close both doors. I then take the bowl, put it on the kitchen island, walk into the pantry. I grab the oats. They're in a Tupperware container. I grab the oats. I grab walnuts, also in a Tupperware container. And I grab either the almond butter or the peanut butter. It's the peanut butter that's only got peanuts and salt, no added sugar. Same with the almond butter. I take whichever one out I'm going to eat that day. Take it out of the pantry. I set the almond butter and the walnuts on the island. I hold on to the oats, take the lid off of it. Get one third scoop of oats out, put it in the bowl, put the lid back on, set it back into the pantry. Take the bowl, put it in the microwave. Two minutes I'll go from there back to the paper plate where I open up a bag of sourdough bread that my wife has made, homemade. As I open that bag, my three dogs will run into the kitchen. The oldest one will sit down. The middle one will jump up onto the put her paws on the counter. The other one just kind of lays back. I cut a slice, a third for each one of them. Then I cut my slice, put it into the toaster, push the button down, reach up into the cabinet, grab the honey, reach over into the drawer, get a spoon out. Get a knife out, set the knife next to the paper plate. Go around to the other side of the kitchen island where I have a spoon, scoop butter out, set the honey down. At this point, the microwave is at 13 seconds. I then open up the drawer of the freezer and I get a quarter cup of blueberries out. Then the, then the microwave goes off, I pop the microwave out, put the butter in first, put the frozen blueberries on top of it. Take the applesauce out of the refrigerator, dump a little bit in, a third of the little thing, into my oatmeal, put the walnuts on top, squeeze the honey on there, at which point the, my, the toaster goes beep, the toast comes up. Walk over to the cabinet, put the honey back up, get the toast, put it on the paper plate, flip around to the kitchen island. take the knife that was laying there, scoop out the peanut butter, I forgot earlier when I get the, the uh, applesauce out, I also get a little bit of jelly out. It's kind of the only added sugar I have in my life right now. Put a little bit of jelly on top of either the peanut butter or the almond butter. At this point, you stir up the, the, the oatmeal. Push it to the side, get the TV tray, go set it up in, in front of the couch. Pour a cup of apple cider and make my coffee. You take those drinks in first and you put them in the living room. Because if you take the food first, the dogs will get it. You put the drinks in there. Come back and you get the oatmeal and the the toast. Take it back in there. Sit down. Turn on the TV. Go to YouTube. If it's a Friday, you watch the Pat McAfee Show segment with Nick Saban on it. If it's any other day, guess what? Do whatever you want. It's up to you. It's the only random of the morning. You sit down and you eat your food. You drink the apple juice. Push the TV tray to the side. Slowly drink the coffee while you watch the rest of your YouTube channel. I do it every single day. When I first started this, Jennifer said, Matt, you really think you can eat oatmeal every single day? I said, Jennifer, I've been eating a frozen waffle with peanut butter and syrup on it for 31 years. This is my jam. I got this. I might not do anything else. But routine, I can do it. I do it every day. And there's such power in that routine. Let me tell you what happened Saturday. Saturday, yesterday morning, I get up. I go to do all that same exact thing. I made one mistake. When I reached and got the bowl out of the cabinet, I set it down. I got the paper plate. Instead of putting it to the left of the bowl, I put it to the right of the bowl. I grabbed the measuring cup, went over to the the sink, turned on the water, got two-thirds cup of water, walked over, and started pouring it onto the paper plate. True story. True story. In fact, let me tell you how dumb this is. I am pouring it, and I say this out loud. What are you doing? Still pouring. It totally jacked up my morning, by the way, because it's at this point that I realize, well, I'm not breaking my record of how long it takes me to go from getting to the cabinet to eating. There's no way I'm breaking the record this morning. All right, It's two minutes of microwave time. I can do this whole breakfast in less than four minutes occasionally, every now and then. It's like as soon as I walk in the kitchen, I look, check the time, see if I can beat the day before. As soon as I pour that, my whole day's ruined. I ain't going to be anywhere near four minutes now, right? Got to dry off the cut paper. No way I'm throwing that paper plate away, by the way. Dry that thing off, start all over. Why? Because of the power of a habit and the power of routine. As we begin to establish habits in our lives and routines in our lives, they have the ability to have this compounding effect. It's the reason why, If somebody parks behind your car in the driveway that does it normally, you're likely to get in, put it in reverse, and back over them. Because you will do, there's a lot of what we do in our life that is the result of routine. Three weeks ago, we kicked off a series from John chapter 3, verse 16, the most popular verse in the entire Bible, probably the most memorized verse. And over the last three weeks, we have been diagnosing and dissecting that verse word by word, element by element, to try to understand this idea of God loving the world so much that he gave. And, and this morning, I, I got to, as I was going through my routine this morning, and I was, knew what I was going to be teaching on here in, a, in just a little while, it was as though God said to me this. He said, what if you considered the verse that you're going to look at this morning from the perspective of a habit as I'm making up my oatmeal? It's as though God said, What if the principle of the passage you're looking at this morning, you're going to teach on this morning, what if it could be ingrained to such a level of habit that in the same way you can make that oatmeal without any thought, you are beginning to live your life with that type of habitual routine relative to the passage that you're looking at this morning. And and it was as though this passage just took on a whole different meaning for me. And so this morning, what I want to do is I, I want to take you back to John chapter three as we wrap up this series. I want to take you back to John three sixteen, the verse we've looked at this entire series, where John is, is quoting something that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He had memorized Matthew, I mean uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If somebody wanted to know what is God's thought on any situation. Nicodemus would have been the guy to ask, and yet it was Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and goes, hey, there's something I have just got to know. What do I have to do to inherit, to have eternal life? Like it was as though Nicodemus had all of this life figured out. He would have been considered one of the foremost experts of how to do life right, and yet this one thing still was a conflict in his mind is, I might have this figured out, but I don't know what to do about what's to come. And he asks Jesus about it. And Jesus begins to tell him about being born again. And that just blows his mind. Like, I don't know how to do that. And finally, Jesus says, let me just kind of narrow this down for you. And, and he says, John 3, 16, that God loved the world, that He God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this, in, in one sentence, Jesus sums up the entire mantra, the entire manifesto of everything he would say from that point forward. I mean, it is the picture. It is the... It, it is the, the cream of the crop moment of the definition of the gospel. And, and we've looked at that for the last three weeks. And I, and I love this because what Jesus says, if you actually look at it in the Greek, is he says, God loved the world and demonstrated it in this way, that he gave his son. And one of the things that we haven't really talked about over the three weeks is what this word gave implies as Jesus is saying it. You see, in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus kind of takes us into the living room of our lives, if you will. You know, the the living room of your house is kind of like the place of intimacy, like not just everybody can come. Anybody can come to your front porch. Not really anybody gets to come to your living room. The living room implies relationship. It implies intimacy and affection. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus takes us into the living room of relationship, living room of the gospel. And he says, let me talk to you about God's love. He loved you so much that he demonstrated it this way, that he gave his son. And understanding this, that when Jesus is saying that, he's the son, and he's understanding the implication of what's being given. You see, when God gave his son, he didn't give a friend. He didn't give a confidant. It wasn't like, hey, I noticed you were lonely and needed somebody to hang out with. Here's my son. He can come over and spend the night and hang out with you. No, the idea of gave here is the idea of sacrifice. It is that God the Father gave a lamb. Is the implication, as Jesus says this, Jesus is looking already to the cross. You see, at Christmas when we talk about joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing and the first Noel and this idea of joy and excitement, and certainly it was. Because God, who has been silent for 400 years, is now speaking through his Son. And there was excitement, but you can't look at the cradle and not look at the cross. The fact that Jesus was born meant he was here and been given to die. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, God takes us, Jesus takes us into the living room where there is affection and compassion, and he talks about his love. And we memorize that verse, and probably the most memorized verse in the whole Bible. But what we often forget is what he says in verse 17. And in verse 17, I think holds... Maybe the secret to a habit and a routine that I want you to take hold of. He says this. Jesus continues his conversation with Nicodemus when he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's saying, no, oh, Matt, what, what does this have to do with the habit? Well, we'll get there. You see, Jesus transitions in one verse from the living room to the courtroom he leaves the idea of affection and love and turns his attention to justice and guilt. You see, when you see the word condemn in scripture or the word condemnation in scripture, that is a courtroom conversation that the writer is having at that moment. You see, condemnation is not just about accusation. Condemnation is not if from a scriptural perspective, it's not me just judging you and saying, I think there's something wrong or you're not doing something right. No, see, condemnation is the, courtroom, is the courtroom aspect of sentencing. So if you were accused of a crime, the condemnation is not found in the accusation. You would be accused of a crime and then you would go to court and there would be a trial. And in that trial, the prosecution would present evidence for your guilt And you might present evidence for your defense. And eventually, both sides will rest their arguments. And there'll be deliberation among the jury. And then the jury comes back. And they make a declaration of either your guilt or your not guilt. And when we see the word condemnation in Scripture, the implication is is that there was a sentence given due to The verdict of guilty. And here's the crazy thing. Nicodemus, who is hearing Jesus saying that, and billions of people who have heard this because John recorded it in his gospel, are well aware, you and I this morning, are well aware that we're guilty. You know, it's the interesting thing of all the different conversations I've had concerning religion and Christianity and all the ways that people try to get to God and even those people who don't think there is a God. The one commonality I've had in every conversation is I have never met the person who was sober, at least, who would say this, well, i just going to tell you, man, I just don't think that there's any issue with me because I've never done anything wrong. I've never actually met that person. We may have a differing opinion of what doing something wrong leads to and who you're going to answer to for it. But the fact is is that every person in the room has failed to meet expectation. If you don't think there's a God, maybe you don't think that you've met God. Maybe maybe you're not concerned about not meeting God's expectation. But at the very least, you know that you probably don't meet your spouse's expectations all the time. And you don't even meet your own expectations. You're going to understand this in about five weeks when you make a New Year's resolution. And about halfway through February, you've already bailed on it. Right, Some of you are going to be like, I'm, I am going to get in shape this year. And then you're going to take my method. And about February, you're going to go, "Yeah, hey, you know what, round is a shape too. I'll just go with that. I mean, you're going to do that. Some of you are going to be like, I am going to church every Sunday this next year. That's my New Year's resolution. And about February, you're going to be like, that's just too much to ask. You know why? Because we fail at meeting expectation. In fact, if you have the idea that you want to come to church every Sunday next year, make this year your New Year's resolution. Be like, I am not going to church next year. And then when you fail at that, you'll be coming to church. That'd be awesome, right? You can, just do, you can just convince yourself a little reverse psychology there. Because we don't meet expectations. And we are guilty. The realization is, is that when you entered the courtroom where God sits as judge, and the prosecutor presents the evidence against you, when that verdict is read unanimously, 100% of the time, we as humans get declared guilty we're guilty and if you were in a courtroom standing trial for a crime after you were pronounced guilty there would be a little time maybe there'd be another there'd be another hearing that would be set and we call it in America the sentencing hearing you would go for sentencing well that idea of sentencing is the word that we use that's used here in scripture for condemn when the, when the judge declares you are going to spend life in prison or life without parole or 20 years or 40 years or you have been given the death sentence. That is the condemnation. You have been condemned to death or condemned to life in prison or condemned to a 20-year sentence, whatever the case may be. That's the condemnation. And Jesus takes us from the living room to the courtroom. And when he gets in the courtroom, very subtly to Nicodemus who would have understood this being a teacher of the law as he says to Nicodemus he says I want you to understand that that God loved the world so much he sent his son but the son when he sent his son he didn't send him into the world to condemn the world he sent him into the world that the world might be saved through him Now, now some of you some of you remember this as a kid you remember you got in trouble and there were sometimes you get in trouble and mom could handle the condemnation, the punishment. But then there were other times when mom would look at you and go, well, You just wait till your daddy gets home. And I don't know about you, but I, those are the worst words ever, right? At that moment, even like as a five year old, this, this would be my response uh, No, mom, how about we negotiate terms of peace, <laughs> right? How about. You and I work this out. We don't need to involve dad. He don't want to come on from work and deal with this, right? Because because we understand what that means. And it would have made sense for God to send his son, that when God would come, that he would send his son to set things right by bringing with him condemnation. That would be the expectation. In fact, if we were writing the story, that's what we would do. Is God finally got so fed up with them that he came and he just annihilated them and started all over. But Jesus goes, no, Nicodemus, understand this. When God comes, he's not coming the way you expect him. He is sending his son as a sacrifice because he's not coming to condemn the world. He's coming to redeem it. He is coming to make it right in a whole different way than you've ever imagined. He has come to set you free. It would be like this. Imagine you're in that same courtroom and the evidence has been presented and the guilty verdict has been given and now you're back for the sentencing and the judge says, you're sentenced to life. Life without parole. It's a death sentence for the most part. You will never see light of day again. You'll spend the rest of your life in prison, behind bars, You'll eat prison food and you'll wear an orange jumpsuit. Terrible. Orange is a terrible color. And you got to wear it the rest of your life. That's why they have it in prison, by the way, because orange is terrible. So death sentence in and of itself. you got to wear orange the rest of your life. And they, they put the handcuffs on you. And they shackle your legs. And they give you your orange jumpsuit to wear. And you're heading out of the court. And suddenly somebody goes, hey, wait a minute. Don't leave. Take his or her handcuffs off. Unshackle their feet. And for the love, get them out of that orange jumpsuit. In fact, robe them in royalty. Because they're a joint heir. And set them free. And the judge goes, No, no, we can't do that. Because you can't just set somebody free. Somebody has got to pay the price for the guilt. And suddenly the person speaking, it becomes apparent who they are. As Jesus says, I understand. And I've paid for it. On the cross, I paid for every sin, I paid the price for all the guilt. And I covered the cost for their freedom and they believed in me and they don't have to perish they're not condemned to life without parole they have been given life to the full because see I didn't come to condemn them I came to set them free and you say well man what does that do with a habit well see I think I think that some of you need to make some lifestyle changes in 2024. I mean, I'm not going to name any names. Some of you need to lose a few pounds. And I feel like as a guy who lost 40, I, I mean, I have the right to tell some of you need to lose it. Not because you look terrible. You just ought to get healthy. Take it from me. It's much better to live this way than that way. I feel so much better. Some of you need to lose some weight. Some of you probably need to do some other things. Maybe go to the gym. I don't know. Maybe, you know read your Bible every day, come to church more. I don't know. Some of you probably need to make some lifestyle changes with some resolutions. You figure that out for you. But there is one habit that if I could make you do, I would make you do it. There's one habit that if I could beg you and that would have any result, I would beg you. And that is that I would love for you to make this a habit in your life, that you would develop the routine and the habit of living like you've been set free. To live like you've been set free. You see, I think that many of you in the room have placed your faith in Jesus. You believe in him, and you have everlasting life. It's been declared for you. And in the courtroom, Jesus demanded that, you be, that the handcuffs be taken off and the shackles be taken from your feet, and the and, and the jumpsuit be removed and you have been you've been robed in royalty and yet for some reason it's like every day you go show up at prison and you willingly put yourself back in the shackles and you say hey I'd like to go have lunch eat some of that prison food today and if you could just show me to my bunk and they're going you you, you don't have to be here you know like, I know but I just I feel like it's where I deserve to be. And you're right. It is where you deserve to be. I think I'll just go like, and you live under this condemnation where you feel like you never measure up and you're never good enough. And no matter what you do, you constantly think about the failures and the 8 million failures that we sang about in that last song, 8 billion failures. And you're constantly reminded of where you don't measure up and stack up. And you have a habit of going back to the prison. And the dumbest thing a person could do who'd been set free from prison would be to go to prison. Actually, it's the second dumbest thing. You know what the first dumbest thing would do? Is to go and do the same thing that got you put there to begin with. To go repeat the crime. That'd be the dumbest thing. The second dumbest would be to go to a place that you had no business going and no need to go. And yet, over and over and over, what you and I do as followers of Jesus is we commit the same crimes. We go back to the same prison that we've been set free from. And the thing I would love to tell you is create a habit of living like you've been set free. What do set free people live like? I thought that through this morning. I think there's probably a lot of answers to it. But here's what I think the main answer is. They They would live lives that had attitudes of gratitudes. They would be so thankful that they didn't have to be condemned. And that they were set free. That not out of obligation to stay free, but out of gratitude because they've been set free. I think they would live for the one who set them free. I think they would do everything they could to please the one who set them free. To determine, why would you set me free? For what reason have I been set free? For what purpose? And they would find their purpose. And they would find their reason and they would live up to it. And if I had a habit I would want you to develop and a routine I would want you to get into. The oatmeal one's not bad, by the way. But what would be even better is if you begin to live like you've been set free. I want to show you one more verse of Scripture, one more passage. We've had so many technical difficulties this morning. I mean, it may be 2 o'clock. I don't know. can't even get the. I, I mean, I don't know how much time I got left on the back screen anymore. So we just go until I get finished. But I want to show you another passage of scripture. And if you were asked me, Matt, what, what are you going to? What's your New Year? I don't do New Year's resolutions, but sometimes I do set goals. And so my twenty twenty four goal, I'll just tell you that way you can hold me accountable to it. Is uh, I want to memorize Romans chapter eight, the entire chapter. I think it's thirty one verses. Uh, I tried to do this five or six years ago when I was teaching through it, and I gave up on it. Actually, I think Charles Hunt was doing better than me, and it, it bothered me, so I just quit. That's the excuse I use anyway. But I I, I want to memorize. I think it's the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. And I want to memorize Romans chapter 8. And I figure I ought to be able to do that in 12 months. And so, um, but it's interesting when Paul is writing his letter to the church in Rome, probably 40 or 50 years after Jesus says what he said in John chapter 3. It's very interesting how he begins Romans chapter 8 or this section of his letter to Romans. And I want you to notice how similar it sounds to what Jesus said. He said this, there's therefore now no condemnation. There's that word. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you what? Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, he gave in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn me and you. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, now here's how we live set free. Said so those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. That's going back to the prison and going back to the chains and back to the shackles and back to the orange jumpsuit. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I can't imagine anything I would want more for you than life and peace. And I think you can experience it when you learn to live like you've been set free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your son came to set us free, that you gave him as a sacrifice, as a lamb. You gave him to die in our place so that by believing in him, we could not only have eternal life to come, but abundant life right now by living as though we've been set free. So, Father, thank you for that opportunity and that privilege and Lord, I pray that you would work in us to help us to discover and learn and live like we've been set free. For those who may be here who have never placed their faith in you, Lord, I pray you would draw them to that your loving kindness would draw them to repentance. God, as we worship together one last song, Lord, may we, may we do it out of gratitude. And may you keep us constantly reminded of the condemnation that you saved us from and the life that you saved us to in Jesus name.